Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, November the 26th, 2023. As we transform from an industrial to a digital economy as we enter the age of AI, the networked age, it seems as if one of the fronts, one of the centers of conflict, of transformation, is the university. Barely a day goes by without some headline about universities, usually rather critical, sometimes full of hope, sometimes full of doom. Lots of stories about universities buying up entire cities. Of course, they have huge amounts of money because they cost so much to go to. Um, we even did a show on how universities are colonizing downtowns. Lots of shows also about how universities are failing at inclusion. Um, the legacy system at many of the top universities from Harvard to Stanford to Columbia seem to be bastions of privilege, which only enforce the old um, industrial or perhaps post-industrial inequalities. And then, of course, there's the toxic discourse, which some people think universities can help with, but many people believe it actually the cause of a lot of the problems with our inability to talk to one another. Much of this has been brought to a head by the current war in the Middle East and the counter allegations of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia within the university. It speaks of the potential and importance of universities and, of course, also of the way in which the digital revolution can potentially transform them, um, to turn them into agencies of inclusion, agencies of toleration. One man who's given a great deal of thought to this is my guest, William Emmett, um, who is a professor of professional practice in international and public affairs at the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, one of the leading uh, schools of practice for training diplomats and entrepreneurs and thinkers in the world. And he is the co-author of a new book, Leveling the Learning Curve, Creating a More Inclusive and Connected University. He is, of course, joining us from the campus of Columbia University in uh, uptown uh, Manhattan. Uh, Bill uh, Emeke, uh, well, uh, congratulations on, on the book. I wonder if there's a contradiction, though, at the heart of, of at least the, the subtitle of the book, the idea of creating a more inclusive and connected university. Um, shouldn't universities be places of privilege to train the best, the most able? Why should they be inclusive? Well, uh, for our own good, <laughs> for our good, for society's good, uh, it doesn't mean that every person needs or should have a PhD or even a master's degree, but access to both the language, the research, the uh, current, you talked a lot about what's going on in the world. Shouldn't universities be part of that discourse and shouldn't university scholars, students, uh, practitioners uh, be able to speak to a broad audience? The reality is we have the technology now that you can literally speak to anyone in the world 
almost everyone in the world at the same time for nothing. And you can record it and they can see it. So we can do it. We should do it. And part of the book is giving people a handbook on how to do it. How many people, uh, Bill, are uh, at uh, the international, um, the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia? So we are a graduate school. Uh, at any given time, we have about 700 or 750 students, uh, mostly full-time, but some executives. Uh, but we also, and I run uh, a fairly significant executive education program, which provides uh, more uh, shorter term learning. And we, we've worked with 40 different countries around the world, um, both people from government, nonprofits, private sector, Currently, we're, we're doing programs for the New York City Police Department, the Fire Department, um, a leadership program that's available globally. So there are different mechanisms and, if you will, different strokes for different folks. So I, I'm not saying necessarily, although I wouldn't rule it out, of enabling many more people. All right. Well, that was my question. You, you, you take 750 people every year, but yeah. I'm guessing 10 times that number want to come to such a yep. uh, a prestigious school yep. as uh, as as this graduate program at Columbia, your School of International and Public Affairs. If, as you said in the beginning, if digital levels the playing field so radically, so um, so completely that anyone can go for free, then how how do you distinguish between the people who? at least in some people's minds, deserve to go and people who don't. How can you distinguish between the 750 you take and the 7,500 who you reject? Well, one of the reasons why we, re yes, it's a, it's a hierarchy of people who have already achieved the kind of academic record that enables them to get a seat here. But part of the reason why we have 750 is that's all the seats we have. We don't have enough space to do more people in person. But just because we can't do more than that in person doesn't mean there aren't many more people who are qualified. But they either can't come or they can't afford to come. And more and more universities are providing degrees and cert certificates. There are options there too online. And that's a great opportunity. And it's another way to, to level the learning curve. You're a professor of practice. Uh, I'm a parent of two kids, one who just graduated NYU, the other who's finishing uh, another expensive, privileged liberal arts college. Why is college, Bill, so expensive? That's a question I've been asking <laughs> for the 30 years I've been here. Um, there are a variety of reasons. Um, some of them make sense. You know, the the cost of professors, the cost of real estate, you know, heating, lighting, all those kinds of things, particularly in a city like Manhattan or London or Beijing or whatever. So there are a lot of fixed costs. Um, also, the university has a research agenda, uh, which is a very important thing that we do. And a lot of the things, both research and topics like fine arts, for example, 
don't even come close to breaking even. So to some degree, the degrees that lead to jobs that pay a good amount of money end up, this is, this is the world according to me, I'm not speaking for the university, I'm speaking my own assessment. The degrees that lead to good paying jobs, those people end up paying more of their fair share to cover the cost of the many important things that are being done that don't pay for themselves. In your view, do you think that the universities are one of the most um, perhaps corrosive mechanisms for compounding inequality? The fact that only the wealthy can afford to send their kids to school, these kind of schools, only the wealthy can afford to educate their kids at high schools, which can get them into these fancy schools. Only the wealthy can afford to allow their kids to take the, 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 the tests that allow them to get high scores that will get them in, so that America has increasingly become an aristocratic system built around its universities? No, I don't think that's true at all. Um, the reality is, I, I speak for myself. Uh, I was the first person to graduate high school on either side of my family. I went to public high school um, I was able to get scholarships to go not to Columbia, but to Syracuse University. Uh, I worked as a janitor at night. Um, I got my master's and PhD. I've worked in government for many years. I've been teaching at Columbia for, for decades. Um, I don't think I'm that special. Uh, there are many universities in the U.S. for many community colleges, which you can get two years of education for almost nothing. Um, I think in the U.S. there's been a, um, a decline, not a precipitous, but a significant decline in the numbers of people who decide to go to college. Now, some of them are people who look for jobs that don't require it. But, you know, there has been a, a campaign by some of the largest companies in the world to say, you don't need to go to college. If you're bright and willing to work hard, come work for us and we'll train you. Um, so there are a number of things that are going on. I, is universe, are universities like ours way too expensive in my view? Yes, they are. Could they be cheaper? I think they could. One of the ways to make them cheaper is to make more degrees accessible online. And if, if you have a chance to read the book, this is happening. Places that offer very high quality, high cost education have found ways to put those degrees online and to make a hundred or a thousand times more students able to get those degrees, whether it be Georgia Tech or Michigan or Berkeley uh, or Arizona State, uh, the, we talked to 50 of the leading people in the industry, from professors to technologists to administrators. I, you know, obviously, I want people to read the book. We wouldn't spend all the time that we did writing it uh, not to have people read it. But the book will tell you this is being done. This can be done. And, you know, COVID showed us that it can be done. And you can reach lots of people at a very high level. We are speaking. Um, we are speaking with William B. Emeke, uh, professor at Columbia and the co-author of Leveling 
the learning curve. Uh, Bill, you offered your own story as an anecdote to suggest that it can be done. You're the first in your family to go to school. I, I respect you for that. But I wonder whether uh, you, you clearly weren't, uh, you're, you're not a recent graduate. I'm not going to ask you when you graduated. Um, a long think, time ago. Right, a long time ago. And, and clearly the universities have changed. Does it concern you that if you were starting out today, if you have the same background, the same family, it might be more of a struggle? Um, I could be politic, but I'll be honest. No, I don't think so. Um, I, I've taught literally thousands of students here. Many of them are what you would describe, people who come from, I don't wanna say privilege, but well-off families and, and second, third, fourth generation of well-off families. They're wonderful people. Remember too, this is the School of Public and International Affairs. It's not the business school and it's not the law school, but the tuition is pretty similar. So even the well-off people who choose to come here are pretty much choosing a career in government, at the UN, in social organizations, they're choosing to go into a profession that's not gonna make a ton of money, but is gonna make the world a better place. And so in that mix of fourth generation graduate students, I have people just like me, just like I was, who are very competitive. Again, the limit I see is yes, price, but that can be dealt with. And second, access. And if you use technology, you can make it accessible to everybody. And by the way, in your lead-in, which you mentioned about the you know, horrible uh, political conflict, verbal political conflict, and sometimes physical conflict going on in the United States as a result of issues in the Middle East, I would argue the universities are not making that worse. They're, they're mitigating it, maybe not as much as I would like but at least most universities like mine are standing up and saying, we, everybody has to have a voice, but it's gotta be a responsible voice and it's gotta be a peaceful voice. I come from a generation where Columbia University was shut down by people like me. So, you know, adamant protests about legitimate issues have been part of the university history all my life. Sometimes they've been on the wrong side of the issues. I would say today they're on the right side. If we listen more to universities and professors from universities, then we listen to politicians who are fomenting this for their own self-interest. I have a couple of them I could name. Um, you know, that's what's going on. And the fact that people have less access to facts, which we have here. I'm not saying we're perfect by any stretch. But there are people here like me who would say, how could anybody be against the ceasefire? How could that be wrong? Bill, um, we've done a number of shows on the intellectual atmosphere at universities. One book in particular captures it, the canceling of the American mind that both authors were on the show. They talk about the disappearance of intellectual freedom at many universities they don't i don't think they cite yours uh, certainly your school they may mention columbia um and in fact one of the authors suggested that it was a return to the mccarthyist days of intolerance i'm assuming you would strongly disagree with them well i mean i i haven't been everywhere all the time but i travel a lot i teach a lot of places i think that's just 
blatantly incorrect. So anyone can pretty much say anything they want and get away with it. I mean, obviously, no, no. I mean, the famous Supreme Court decision, there's no freedom of speech to yell fire in a crowded theater. So if you if you start to spout incendiary incendiary things, even in a discussion, you're provoking violence. I mean, I think that has to be controlled. But the fact that that these incidents are 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 happening at universities is actually, in my view, a healthy sign. That's where people come where they feel they can say what they think. And what about uh, Bill, there's we've done a number of shows about the, the generational qualities of this. Is there a fragility to the kids who now attend places like Columbia? Do they take criticism? better or worse than previous generations or, or is that an invention as well no I, I don't think i i don't think anybody takes criticism well nobody i've met in my many years does i certainly don't um i think we're learning to to speak to people better so that when we disagree we don't basically say i'm right and you're wrong i'm smart and you're stupid we used to say that a lot not me but lots of people did Excuse me. I don't think you can say that anymore and get away with it. I do think in the times post-COVID, I think COVID was a tough environment for younger people. It really was. I mean, imagine having your high school, your senior year in high school canceled. I mean, so there's been a lot of stuff that that has uh, preyed on the minds of younger people over the last few years. I think that does make them a little sensitive. I also think, my own view, again, I think social media has been a really negative force in society worldwide. I'm not saying it should be outlawed. It couldn't be even if you wanted to. But I think it needs to be managed better by all of us. And I hold us all accountable for that. We are speaking with William B. Emeka, and I keep on mispronouncing the name, Bill. Okay. I but E-I-M-I-C-K-E. It serves you right for having such a difficult name to pronounce when it's spelled. Well, it was spelling by Ellis Island. My ancestors oh. from Ireland and, and Germany who couldn't read or write. And the pronunciation was by my ancestors who tried to make this mish sound somewhat quote unquote American. So well I'm you teasing you. It's a lovely it name and it's a lovely book and a lovely conversation. Um I want to remind everyone that this show in part is brought to you by Liberty Quarterly <coughs> Journal of Culture and Politics. So all our guests, including Bill, are going to get a complimentary annual subscription. It's an excellent new publication put out by Leon Weaseltier, one of America's great literary and political critics and writers and journalists and editors. Uh, going to run a short piece about uh, liberties, and then we'll come back uh, with Bill and talk more about the book itself, learning, uh, leveling the learning curve, what he's trying to do, its history of digital education. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. 
a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with William Emeke, uh, the author of a very interesting new book um, called Leveling the Learning Curve. Bill, tell us a little bit about the book. It's in part a series of interviews and in part a history of digital education at the uh, university level. Why'd you write the book? Uh, well, originally we wrote the book because we had been working with what is not necessarily a new technology, but an improved technology, our ability to potentially reach people who are not in front of us. Um, also, we were talking before the break a little bit about how younger generations are, are different. One of the things I would say is very different is, you know, making a broad generalization they don't read, they watch, they listen. So over the past decade or so, I've been trying to bring more digital tools into my classroom, video case studies to modernize the case study that's been around for a hundred years, uh, having people watch them before they come to class and talk about it. I throw readings into, but I'm pretty certain they'll watch the video. I'm not so certain to do the re readings. And we were successful. And then COVID hit and we couldn't teach in person. So then we started the whole class online. And what we learned is over time and what I'm doing now is what we call hybrid education. We're at people in the room, but I have other people who are online at the same time. And it's hard for me. Um, I don't think it's hard for them, but we reach more people and that way there's no excuse to miss class and those people who are mostly somewhere near the campus uh although not always could just as well be in mongolia uh and that's why i'm so excited about the book because it really gives us the potential to not you know we should not just think about universities we should think about where all the people are in the world like china like india like indonesia where there's no way they are going to build a European elementary and high school system for cumulatively among them, 3 billion people. I this don't know whether uh, uh, Indians and Chinese educationists would necessarily <coughs> agree. Uh, also, why? Oh, yes, they would. Yes, they would. So, so only an American university can do this? No, no, no. I'm saying elementary and secondary education. They can't build the capacity to teach all those people in little schools all around the country. It's never going to happen. They're never going to have that many teachers. They're going to have to use some version of hybrid education using the tools that are in the book if they're going to really educate everybody, give everybody an opportunity to have a quality education. By the way, the same thing is happening in healthcare with telemedicine. Two of the most important things for society to provide for its residents and citizens, healthcare and education. And the tools that we have at our disposal right now can really set us ahead a hundred years from the old ways of doing things. So 
this is really not small stuff. This is big stuff. It certainly is big stuff, but there are critics who will note that the privileged, the wealthy, the well-connected will still be educated in person by men like you on campuses at Columbia, NYU, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley, and that digital education will take the middle out of education and will be free, but won't be of a high quality. And it's actually rather hard to teach people virtually. How, how would you respond to that critique? Well, I mean, a, a couple of things. First of all, um, if you make high quality, you can make higher quality of every kind of education, no matter who it is, uh, by making it available online. Would I rather be in the room than at home? I'd rather be in the room as a student, as a professor. But a close second, if you think I'm good in person, I'm not bad online. So we're not talking about having lower level people and lower level education off campus. We're talking about having the same education just online rather than in person. I mean, today you and I couldn't have this conversation if it were in person. So you're giving me a great opportunity to speak to your audience, which I would never have without this technology. And, uh, you know, that might be a blessing for them if they mistakenly turn in and get hooked on listening to me. But what about small classes, uh, large lectures? I take your point, but one of the one of the privileges, I guess, of high quality education is to sit in a room with 10 or 15 like minded people and discuss complicated, controversial, interesting issues. Can that be done online? Yes. Yes, it can. In fact, I would say, you know, up to 25 people. I've during COVID, I had 25 people on my right here, sitting at my desk, on my screen, on Zoom. I could see everybody's picture. I could see everybody's name. They could see me. We could talk. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, would I, again, would I rather be in the room? Would I rather talk to students before class, after class, on break, have them talk with one another? There's no question that that, in my view, is better. But we're talking about let's reach more people. Let's cut the cost. Let's give people education. Maybe they don't get a degree. Maybe they get a certificate. Maybe they just get the learning. You know, I would argue I've learned as much from YouTube videos over the last decade than I learned about fixing things in the rest of my life, particularly after my father died. So a lot of learning is is really possible and sometimes even better because you can replay it. Uh, I think, you know, you're a really smart guy. I wouldn't want to be in a debate with you because I lose for sure. No, but, I was thinking the but, reverse. But I think this is not second class education. I think for some people, particularly for shy people or people who are maybe not the smartest person in the room, they can learn at their own pace. You can test until you pass. I mean, I if we do this the right way, it's going to make things a lot, lot better. 
Your book's full of models. You talk about the Khan Academy, TED Talks, MOOCs. Yep. What, where should people start? I mean, obviously, they need to read your new book, Leveling the Learning Curve. But <laughs> what are the most instructive models for online education, especially ones that will create a more inclusive and connected university? Where should professors, university administrators, and indeed potential students look? Well, you know, there there are there are started at the beginning. I mean, it took us a whole book to say this. So I think the problem, the, the breakthrough was with MOOCs. That's where we first started to say, okay, we're going to have high quality university education, and it's going to be available online for free. Let's remind everyone, Bill, of what a MOOC is. I actually, it's funny, I haven't heard that term for a while. It's it used a, to be in vogue. It's less in vogue now. It's 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 what what it's like massive online education. So that if I did my course in effective management, I would put it on a platform. Let's say Coursera, for example. I would put it on there. It would have the same 13 weeks as my course live. It would be filmed so you could stop it, start it. It would probably be done in seven to 10 minute chunks. You would get a quiz, you could move on. And in many cases, at the end, you would get a certificate of completion, which many universities would honor for credit. That mechanism is still around, but I think what caused it to fall out of vogue was that a lot of people would start a course and 90 to 95% of them wouldn't finish. That doesn't mean it's a failure, but it does mean it's, it wasn't an effective step on the way to a university degree or even a university certificate. I think the Khan Academy is a better example, it's focused on elementary and secondary, of what can be done and how at least I think it should be done, which is the Khan Academy is a supplemental way of educating elementary and secondary students with those students going full-time to a regular classroom. But then after school, before school, during school, they have these expert talks, exercises, lessons that get built in. So in the best of all worlds for me, you know, I would be able to offer my course to people at universities all around the country, all around the world. Um, and then they could use it for credit at their university. That, by the way, I think jumps a big jump, right? Because part of the problem is that my university, financially, they pay me. They, they don't want to give my stuff away, certainly for credit. But here's a way that they could allow me to make my stuff available to people for little or no cost. And they wouldn't be getting credits necessarily at Columbia. They'd get credit at Syracuse, where I went, or City College, or some other place. It's interesting you bring up uh, 
the perspective of the professor excuse me, uh, the perspective of the professor, one of the other models you talk about are the TED Talks. TED Talks tend to be put on by famous professors. One who comes to mind is Michael Sandel from Harvard, uh, who teaches at the law school at Harvard and gets millions of viewers online. In this world of digital education, why would a Michael Sandel, or for that matter, a a William Emeke, why would they want to be involved with the university? Wouldn't they be better off just going freelance, putting all their stuff up on Substack or Zoom or YouTube or the Khan Academy and using TED Talks to promote themselves? They'd be freer. They'd probably make more money. Well, I, first of all, I don't know if I, <laughs> I, I can't speak for them. I, I worry about how financially viable I would be as an individual. Well, actor. leaving yourself out but, of it, Michael Sandel, who gets millions of viewers using But I think part of the reason why people get millions of viewers is because there are places like Harvard or Columbia or some certifying institution which says, you know, this person's got to have a lot on the ball or they wouldn't be at Harvard or they wouldn't be at Columbia. And, you know, there's a branding there, too. It's not just, oh, that's right, they're at Harvard. They must be good. It's sort of like, well, Harvard's saying they're certifying. They're charging, you know, $7,000 a student a course for him. Hmm, this is high quality. I can get that for nothing? Hmm, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, And the, the problem is there's so much stuff, right? There's so much stuff on the Internet. How do you know? How do you know what's good? How do you know what's worth your time? And why don't I go out as an individual actor? Or one of the reasons, well, I do to some degree. I do a lot of work for nothing. But but I think it is valuable for people to get degrees. I do. I, if you look at the data, it makes, you know, you get a college, a, a, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, a master's, all those make a difference. On a macro sense, you're way better off only in lifetime earnings by a lot. So if it weren't for education, degree granting education, not to say there's anything wrong with it, but I would be working in retail. That would be the case. That would be a terrible punishment from from Columbia University to retail. Finally, Bill. Um, I'm talking to you from uh, Silicon Valley, where the fashion is, especially amongst the wealthy, the well-connected, to send their kids to Waldorf schools where there's no computers, no screens at all. Uh, Steve Jobs did that, many other uh, leading executives. What would you say to parents who don't want their kids to be educated on screens? You yourself acknowledge that social media was a disaster and might well, even be that, good I if it could it's be banned. So, 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 what would you say to parents and even kids who think that the screen is corrosive? It's it's against learning. No, I don't. I think that's demonstrably not true. That's <laughs> just not true. Uh, do I think it can be addictive? Do I think it's dangerous because there's no kind of I don't want to say censorship, but there's no fact checking. So that, you know, people's totally non-fact-based 
diatribes come across as the same as somebody who really knows what they're talking about. I mean, there are lots of issues, but I, I myself turn to, to the internet many times to learn. There's nothing dangerous. I'm a parent. My daughter, you know, has a master's degree. Um, I, I think there's nothing, I don't think that the students, they missed the networking during COVID, but the students who got their COVID era degrees from Columbia got the same education as the people who are getting it now when it's live. And by the by, here's another thing to think about. My class, which is one of the few that's still hybrid here, I would say on any given Monday night when I teach, half of them come and the other half watch on the internet. It's totally up to them. Totally up to them. So that says to me, if you really want to educate people, you got to give them the option. 